edition of the FCC podcast. This is your host and current commissioner and now newly elected VP, Kirk Swanner. Joining me today, got a really special guest, uh, newly appointed CRAA commissioner for D1AA and D2, Mr. Josh Sutcliffe. Josh, how you doing, mate? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so let's just jump straight into it. Uh, first, I want to get a little bit about your background. Um, so where are you from? How'd you get to the States? Yeah, um, I mean, I was born in Australia, grew up in New Zealand. Um, I met my um, wife uh, when she was on a semester abroad in Australia, and uh, we ended up getting engaged. And I moved in 2004 to sort of the Bay Area and have been here ever since. Sweet. So you played both in California and in Colorado, I think, right? Yeah, I've played California, North Carolina, and Colorado. So um, I've, I've been a little bit all over the place. I've been pretty fortunate to, to play with some some good clubs and uh, have some opportunities around the country. Wonderful. Yeah, so you got a good good view of uh, different parts of the country and understanding of high performance and what works and what doesn't. Uh, what got you into coaching? To be honest, um, I didn't want to do university. Uh, so I was 21 years old and um, – I had an opportunity to be a development officer in South Australia and, um, you know, I was, I was not sure what I was going to do. I, I sort of opted out of um, continuing with law school because law is an undergrad degree in Australia and I knew I wasn't cut out to be a lawyer. Um, and so I've, I've sort of pivoted and, and went into coaching, did an apprenticeship there and been coaching off and on ever since. Uh, probably uh, had a lot of different coaching roles across the country, sort of, um, Stanford as an assistant coach, um, then going across, did some work while I was a player at Glendale um, with sort of set piece stuff and ended up sort of going into USA Rugby, working as coach development manager and then coach development director, looking after coach education and, and trying to create sort of high performance opportunities for coaches to dip their toe in the water there and, um, and sort of came back to Stanford about eight years ago and finished up there as and then moved to Nashville to uh, support my wife. So, um, that's, yeah, coaching coaching's always been alongside playing for me and um, sort of started to understand that that was a, a great opportunity to invest in people. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And I'm glad I found it at sort of 20 years old um, to find your passion then and, and to be able to pursue it is pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. So you were the head coach at Stanford. That was your full-time gig, right? And then you became the commissioner for NorCal. So basically my position for the NorCal conference, the PacWest conference, right? Yeah. So when we transitioned from PacWest to California D1AA North, um, I became the commissioner there sort of uh, by default. Um, I guess we um, sort of were making some moves to change our alignment and um you know, come underneath the California D1A conference um, and we needed someone to sort of step up into that role and, and sort of the, the coaches of the conference elected me and um, that's how I sort of fell into the job and um, then started working with CRAA and uh, got to work with you and, and I think it was a pretty cool opportunity for, for the D1AA teams to play at the national championship and have a bowl game and have a national championship game and um, so I'm excited to work with CRAA to sort of move the game forward and um, have the different levels so people get to compete and, and really genuinely get to compete uh, on the rugby pitch. Awesome. So let's just, I want to dive down a little bit in there because that's probably some California context that you guys understand. So um, previously, 
there was the California Conference, which was D1AA, which had the majority of the college, uh, the California teams, not Cal Berkeley. They were part of the Pac-10 Conference, them and yep. UCLA. And then you had, you had the Gold Coast Conference, which is D1AA, D2, and that's Southern California. And then you had the Pac-West Conference, which is NorCal and parts of Nevada, maybe? Yeah, yeah. University of Nevada right now. And so what was – so I know that there was a push to bring both of the D1AA conferences under the California conference. So what? why did you want the alignment and what was the impetus for that decision? What, what were you trying to gain from that? Yeah, I, the first step was um, we wanted to create a space where there was um, opportunities for teams to go up um, or teams if they have to come down uh, to make that more seamless. I think one of the things we really saw was um, – having multiple types of governance across the state, um, it, it created sort of friction for teams who wanted to play each other in friendlies. And, and so we saw the idea of being able to create a bigger conference with more support uh, for the coaches and, and then more opportunities for the players. Um, we saw that as a really um, a big benefit of combining all our resources together and getting on the same page and sort of working towards creating those opportunities as, as we went forward. So, um, one of the things that really drove it was there's a great group of coaches in the in the D1A schools that get together and supported each other, sort of really came to life during COVID and, and they continued those calls and they started to invite D1AA coaches uh, to that from the NorCal region and, and the SoCal region. And some of those teams wanted to go up. And so this was a way to foster that opportunity to, to move up seamlessly with the support both from the D1AA and the D1A schools. Um, but then to maintain the connection and have rivalries, um, a lot of the D1AA schools still play traditional rivalry games against those D1A schools. So Chico State has a number that they play against Cal Poly and UC Davis and, and other schools in the area. And now Sacramento State's gone up. So they have these sort of um, more formalized opportunities to work them into their schedule. And, and then the D1AA schools, when they play the D1A schools, they can be counted for the strength of schedule for the D1A schools. So um, there were just a few sort of administrative, but also more cohesive and then opportunities for the athletes to compete with the California Grizzlies, which is a senior and a college team. And, you know, they've done some touring as well. And so opening up that pathway uh, for player representative opportunities um, to, to play, you know, in a different country, I think they went to Argentina and Amsterdam and, and they, they're looking to continue that touring opportunity. So both for the off-field support, but also the player pathways, um, it was a really good decision uh, for the yeah. schools to work together. And, and for the Grizzlies, just for some context for those Florida folks listening, that was the reason they were able to go to Argentina and travel is because they had a, a big financial backer paying for the majority of it, right? Yes. Yeah, it was five, a, five a couple of very big Five big figures, right. Yep. Five plus figures, right? Um, yeah. All right. And so then, how many teams are in the D1A California Conference? And then in the Pac West, how many teams did you guys have? And you didn't have D2. It's just D1AA, correct? Yeah, we we only had D1AA um, up there. Um, so there were. Hang on, let me get this right. I think there were eleven teams in the California D1A Conference. That's now twelve. As Sacramento State has gone up. Um, in the Pac West Conference, um, there's floated between six and um, seven teams. Um, we're sort of last year we we're working to sort of reinvigorate San Francisco State as they look to come back from COVID and 
um, one of the community colleges, American River College, is sort of coming in to replace Sacramento State. So that'll be a 17 competition again um, moving forward. So, um, And then in Southern California, they have obviously three teams in D1AA um, that are we're looking to create those opportunities for a California championship as well. Yeah. So the Southern Cal, uh, Northern California is more centralized uh, in D1A, D1AA, and then a lot of D1A. And then in Southern California, mm-hmm. you have a lot more D2 and like D3 programs and only just a handful of D1AA, which is like uh, what UC San Diego, Arizona State, yeah. and one more like Claremont Colleges. Um, but they're, they're technically a small yeah. college. So, okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. So now your current role is that you've, you've moved to Nashville. So you're wonderful, you know, into the Southeast, beautiful Southeast. And you're now the commissioner, the national commissioner for CRA for D, D1AA and D2. So, um, yeah, just give us a bit of background about that and what's the goals. Uh, and yeah, we'll go I think into the landscape. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think one of the things is I've been around rugby a lot of time in a lot of different ways and and one of the things that i really um i feel i don't know I, I want to do is make the college landscape clearer um when you try and explain college college rugby to everyone that it's it's kind of tough and i want to create this opportunity um so d1a really appeals to the highly competitive very well funded highly organized but rugby can also be competitive at a, at the D1AA, D2 level and really give opportunities for players to pursue opportunities both with, with their mates at college, um, but also those who want to push on. We, we need to give them that foundation. And we've always had um, people come out of schools. You know, Luke Gross came out of Marshall and um, we've always had people come from sort of unheard of programs. And, and we need to dedicate real time and effort into that. And uh, one of the other things for me is... Um, really want to make the ACR uh, conferences feel welcome and CRAA as they make their transition. And so this role sort of became a reconciliation, but also how do we push ahead in the future? Great. Yeah. So ACR is coming under CRAA. So let's talk about the landscape. You know, we basically, after the USA rugby bankruptcy, basically, well, first off, what is CRAA and like, how does it, basically it is, U.S. Rugby no longer runs championships. It now outsources the running of competitions to these other governance structures, right? So for the youth or yep. for, the men's, for the adult league, it's the senior club council, right? Yes. But at the college level, it's CRAA, right? This is the USA Rugby Affiliated Competitions yes. Committee. Yep. It was um, at first it was CRAA and ACR were both affiliated with uh, USA Rugby. Um, and so CRAA, which is a college rugby association of America, um, and ACR, ACR is falling under CRAA, um, and it's sort of going to be a 12 to 18 month process. Um, and then we will be the only sort of, um, governance structure, um, that works with USA rugby. Um, so CRAA is looking to create opportunities for men, women, um, across all the different levels from, you know, the elites in D1A and D1 elite all the way um to the d2 competitions that exist around the country all right yeah because in the obviously the other one is ncr which is non-us rugby affiliated um but you know from a florida perspective they play fall 15s and spring sevens and that is the opposite of the macro schedule which we prefer to you you know utilize we prefer to play our our 
competitive 15 season in the springtime, that means our sevens and preseason takes place in the fall. Um, And that's more aligned with like the California and ACR and ACR is what Texas heart of America. And um, yeah, the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Right. So basically uh, anything uh, east of the Mississippi mostly plays fall base 15, except for Florida where spring. So, um, okay. And then, so what is I like to think is, about it? Those who can play in winter choose to play a little bit of winter and, and build towards those uh, spring championships. And, um, you know, I, I think I don't want to be down about NCR. They're, they're also helping create opportunities for people to play. And um, I just like what we do. And I'm really excited about those opportunities for our, you know, clubs and athletes and, and coaches to go forward. I'm with you 100%. Yeah, it's, um, yeah I I respect NCR's decision of doing what they're doing. It is kind of sad that the two parties can't come together, but uh, it's what it is, and so they'll continue whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what is the process going to be for ACR? And the reason I asked is because, you know, now the Florida Conference does have a second division, so we do have D- D2 rugby in here as well. So I asked, for those folks, you know, what are the what are the possibilities for like Division Two uh, within CRAA? You know, at the moment, I have a uh, tentative agreement with the commissioner for Southern California, Steve Vent, for a D two bowl game. But what are the other options on the table this year, if any? Yeah, so at the moment, um, I'm sort of starting to really work closely with the ACR commissioners. Um, obviously, this is still happening as we go along, and I think mergers. Um, take a lot longer than, than probably I want them to take. Um, but we're looking at potentially a pathway to a championship. Uh, but I want to get more input about what that looks like. We definitely want to create opportunities for bowl games um, on that May, the first weekend of May weekend in Houston around all the other events that CRA runs, right? So that's the D1A championship, the D1AA championship. And, and we'd love to have D2 in their, in their bowl games being broadcast um, on the rugby network and, and having those opportunities uh, to showcase the best athletes that are that are playing uh, D2 and the best teams uh, coming out there because um, it's a really great atmosphere. Um, you know, Houston's a great location and it's been there the last few years and um, being part of an event like that that sort of builds towards the whole day um, is something that I think is it's it's one of those Hopefully it's not once in a lifetime. Hopefully you get to do it a couple of times for the for the good programs. But it's it's a it's a memory that stays with you way after your rugby career is done. And and uh, those opportunities to play in a big gala atmosphere, um, I think is is really valuable for the college experience. Yeah, I mean, I hundred percent agree. You know, my my contention always with the champion quote unquote championships was always the multi-weekend, multi-games per weekend, and it was always the burden of winning. The more you won, the more you traveled, the more expensive it got. And particularly for like a Division II club, which doesn't have, you know, huge financial backing, it just becomes quite cumbersome. This is why I think the bowl game opportunity, the bowl game is a wonderful solution because you still get that postseason play, but it's not as financially taxing on the players, and it's also not as administratively burdensome uh, on the administrators. So. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think one of the, the other things is it's always nice to play different people. And if you can look forward to that um, as, as you come out of your league season and, and you know who you're going to look towards. And one of the things that CRA has been 
looking at doing in their D1 double uh, D1A and something that that we want to try and replicate is looking at strength of schedule and how do you compare different teams so we get great matchups at these weekends as well. So um, the bowl games, I think, are going to be a, a part of what we do moving forward and and for all the reasons that you just said, um, it's so, a more cost effective way to do it. So for the future, like a couple of years down the road for D1 AA is concerned, like as more conferences come into CRAA, like the ACR conferences, um, if the concept, if like you talked about the idea of continuing to do bowl games, but you know, like the commissioners get together and like matchups are assigned, and then you basically, based on strength of schedule, like kind of like the old BCS bowl game system, you're going to make one matchup be the national championship. Is that correct? Was that like kind of the concept that's brewing at the moment? It is one of the concepts that is brewing at the moment, and I, I don't want to be definitive because I, I think the all the conferences need to sit around the table and agree to it. But um, it is definitely one of the ideas that is, that is being thrown around. Um, one of the, I, one of the things I really want to get away from is double header weekends um, because that game too, I think just increases the risk of injury for all, all the players there. And, and so how do we make the game entertaining, but safe um, and then also very, very competitive. And, and um, you don't want to like, I always hated the idea of a national championship, and having played in some myself on day two, you just wake up and you, you can barely, I was a front rower, so you could barely lift your neck up. Uh, you couldn't see where you were going until you started playing the game. And and that's not going to create the best product, the most memorable product. And and so I think there is something in the, in the idea of bowl games. And, and that way we don't tax our best clubs um, and put a financial burden on them. But, you know, like buying tickets on two weeks, especially with the, with the flights as they are at the moment, is just, it's bonkers. So... Um, I think we've got to think as a group creatively. I, d- I don't want to be absolutely definitive, but it is yes one of the one of the ideas that is percolating um, there, yeah. and, and I think it's a good idea. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm not trying to make any promises, and I'm not trying to make you stick to anything here. Uh, so don't think it's mm-hmm. that way there, Josh. Um, so <laughs> uh, yeah. So what I do want people to understand is that like there's no good solution, right? Like uh, you. you you can play the doubleheader weekends. It's more game time, right? Everyone talks about wanting to have more game time. So that, is, that accomplishes more game time, but it, there's a cost to it, right? Which is yeah. your player welfare, you know, or you go to the single match weekends, which there's, you know, it, it solves the player welfare issue, but then it has other costs, right? Like you don't get as much game time for dollars spent for travel. So um, basically until we get the sport to a point where we're all the clubs are incredibly financially backed, there's no good solution. So I just want people to understand that. And like, know that, you know, because you said something earlier that mergers can take longer. To me, you're trying to hinting at that, like, there's a chance that people might get frustrated about how long the process takes, right? And so, you know, one thing that we're trying to do as, you know, commissioners is like mitigate frustration, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, to me, the distance between reality and expectation is where is the amount of frustration that someone experiences. So if we as commissioners can adequately uh, express what the reality is and people are willing to accept it, then their expectation is reality and therefore they're not frustrated, right? Like that's kind of my way yep. of going about it. Yep. Is it somewhere similar? Yeah, absolutely. Very much on the same page. And, um, you know, like I'd love to see sponsorships where, you know, airlines and, and big national brand names get involved. But at the moment, we're not there. So so we need to make the best of what we have. And 
and be open about, hey, these are the obstacles. So let's talk about the obstacles. And if we can find a solution around it, we find a solution around it. And if not, we go with what we've got. We all uh, pitch in and, and do our best effort and, and make sure that we create something that, you know, everyone who participates has a really great time. Yeah, I agree. All right. So we talked to, you know, we're kind of hinting a little bit at like uh, high performance, stuff like that. So you have now, like you were a coach at Stanford. Um, when you were the coach, like how much involvement were the students in running the program, right? Because there's always this kind of contention that like sports, you know, we're sports clubs, sports clubs are student run. Um, but my question is, is like, when you look at like the top 40 programs in the country, how much of them is actually student run and, you know, how far can a student run program go? Like, and if we're talking yeah. about like high performance, like what, what are some changes or some indicators that were on the right track? Yeah, I, I think, is um, I think clubs need to have student running in some aspects and, and they need to be well supported in other aspects. And this might get me in, in trouble with a couple of uh, club sports um, folks and, and stuff like that. But I really think to enable the students to have the best experience possible, we need to um, facilitate the off-field um, sort of financial backing and, and put some of those burdens on the alumni and the alumni groups that are supporting um, the clubs. Um, and allow students to to take care of student leadership type things. Um, you know, every school gets a little bit of money from clubs and that sort of thing. And that's where the students should be heavily involved in helping drive the culture and the, the direction of the team each year. Um, but as you get more into high performance, you want to have consistency over the course of a number of years. And I think this is one of the things that gets lost with a student only led organization is student only led organizations it's often a one-year leadership cycle um, and the leader spends the first half of that leadership cycle trying to develop their own sort of vision. And then by the time they're implementing it, they're actually leaving that, that role. Um, and one of the things in a high-performance structure is, and, and successful programs, they have the same head coach for a long period of time. And, and one of the things that that head coach um, helps drive is the culture on and off the field, whether that's accountability, whether that's through different standards, whether that's through the values. Um, because they have that consistency there, the athletes know what they're getting out of it and they can build around those pillars. And once they start to build around those pillars, they get to the point of expressing themselves. And, and high performance to me is having a great foundation of skills and then being able to express yourself as the opportunity arises. And, and I think that's one of the things that gets lost a little bit is you watch these teams and it doesn't matter professional or, or in the college game, they have these great foundational skills. They know exactly who they are and they're waiting for their opportunity. And when they see that opportunity, they have to connect that this is my opportunity and I've got to go for it. And, and so to have that consistency off the field really comes from structures that are consistent, right? And, you know, every student goes through their freshman through senior and, and sometimes just um, fifth and sixth year and, and they're going through different things as they experience it, but that consistency forwarding can come from a coach and the high performance programs have them in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, I would say uh, for me, an indicator of a high that a club is high performance is that a club can kick out their best player and not suffer on the field or financially. And if you can't do that, I would actually contend you're not high performance and therefore we just need to strive to continue to be, to be higher performing. And mm -hmm. to me, uh, like you can achieve a lot 
uh, in a student experience by being a higher performing club if you're not high performance. And I think a lot of times people get stuck up on this, like, oh, we're high performance. And it's just like, not really, you know, like. Yep. And I think, I think you make a really good point. Being a high performing club is one that can express themselves and play really good rugby. And, um, and, uh, and the high performance club, as you say, they, they can mitigate the loss of someone, right? No, no one's bigger than the team, the loss of an injury or whatever it happens to be. Um, and, I think there, there is a difference between those two things. I think there is a difference in the culture off the field as well. Um, you know, a high-performance program, a hallmark of a high-performance program is um, people come to that program with certain expectations um, around, you know, outcomes, and, and they, they work really hard on the processes. And high-performing teams can actually have a little less focus on, on the outcomes because they're more malleable to, to what the group wants. Um, and so I think you, you make a good point. Um, around the, the difference between those two things. So here's a question. In uh, the top 40 programs, how many of them have students as match secretaries? Cool. Less than 10%? Uh, 0%? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know a number, but it's 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 small. It's probably single digits if it is at all. If it is at all. Right. Yeah. So uh, okay, yeah, because that's something I'm trying to like help. Like, what should a president be doing, and what should the coach be doing? And then I always think you need an administrator. Sometimes, if you have like a paid yeah. coach, maybe they can do both the administration and the coaching. But if you're not to the point where you're paying a coach, um, then I think you need a third person that's an administrator that's doing like everything off the field. So, like, what, what, you know, like to me, the schedule is so important, it should not be up to a student. Even preseason games are so important. It's not being to a student. That should really be more on either an administrator or a coach. It's someone that's there for the long yeah. term. Yeah, and, and I would agree with that. I would say um, it, <laughs> I think if you can have the coach or, or an administrator do that work, um, they can do it potentially when the students aren't in school, right? Um, you can, And then you can build in and that way. So to me, the president liaises with the school and they set, they help set the culture for what the club is about with the students. Um, and they're the, they're the figurehead uh, that helps um, make sure that the coach is listening uh, to the students and helping drive that program. Um, so it's inclusive and, and so it's performing the way they want it to perform. And then the coach's role is to sort of make sure that everything about the environment, which includes matches, which includes how you act at training, which includes how you perform on the weekend and warm-ups and all those things. Um, and even, I would say, down to helping guide around finances and, and um, uniforms and, and that we want that to be part of the environment. That way, when you do turn up to play or practice, um, your focus is on playing and practicing as an athlete. Um, and, you know, the coach and the administrators, they take care of the other pieces of it. Um, and, and that allows, you know, and we all know college students are college students first. And, and sometimes they have exams or whatever else is going on. Um, if you're expecting them to remember all these other things that they're doing for the first time, that's where mistakes happen. And that's why we need that support of administrators and coaches to do the work um, that has to be done, that is consistent. Um, and, and yeah, that's why there's a split in leadership, in my opinion. Nice. Yeah, because to me, like... Um... I ask people like, what is the fundamental difference between a amateur athlete and a professional athlete, you know, besides payment, right? <laughs> and to me, the difference is that a professional athlete is not paid to think he's just paid. They are just paid to perform, right? So they're told 
everything. They're told what time to show up, you know, like what the dress code is, what to eat, what the warm up, you know, they, they're told their whole day is scripted when it comes to performance day. And so we can, we can model like a, like a professional atmosphere. And I think if, if clubs do model professional atmospheres, they do become higher performing because it does take some administrative capabilities to be able to plan all that stuff ahead of time, you know, to, um, you know, plan a bus, plan the travel, this, that, and the other, right? Like if you are not taking buses and you're expecting people to pay for their own way in their own cars to travel, you know, that is just like, that is a expense on the, on the players that you're not collecting upfront and not organizing, AKA being a yeah. higher performing club. You're just like keeping the dues down, but then you're, making them trickle in over the year over the course of the season so um mm-hmm. yeah that's that's what i got any other any other points or any things you got anything you know you have a direct line to like every uh important person's in florida's brain anything you want to get get across to them here josh i i would also say trips are one of your best culture builders if you do it right and and being on a bus together um for extended periods of time is is an amazing thing um don't don't discount that um and and also I would I would say this when when it comes to um, creating these and I would aim to be a high performing team um, and let yourself evolve into a high performance program over a number of years and and I think people try and jump in and they try and do they do a lot of work really quickly um, but they don't do it consistently and so I would say aim for a high performing um, team that builds into a high performance program over a number of years. And that might take you six, seven, eight years, um, but really have some patience with it. Uh, and then when you ran Stanford, how, how many kids did you have like consistently on your roster? Um, so I had, I had both the men's and women's teams. Um, oh. And so we had sort of 45 men and, and 35 women um, consistently. And, and there would be some ebb and flow over the course of the year. Um, there's different people came in and out. Um, I would also say this, um, if, if you can, uh, build your alumni off-field off support into endowments if you if you can get the seed money for that uh, because it makes your fundraising goals very different as you progress in the future. Yeah. So that's a great point. Uh, that's, yeah, people should keep that in mind. My question is, is that, you know, what happens if you only have, if you're, if you're a program that only gets like 20 people out to train, like, what is what is the, the first step you should take in order to go from 20 to 40? Uh, so I think the first step to go from 20 to 40 is um, you've got to emphasize and you've got to teach people how to recruit um, and you've, you've got to put your, your, your emphasis on um, building people who are out there living your brand is, and, and attracting the people that you want to attract to the program and um, You've got to actually teach people how to do this. Um, and I think it's always been the case, but it's even more the case now. Uh, as, as people come in, um, everyone's looking to belong somewhere. And, and if you can create a place where they feel like they can connect and belong, um, but to do that, you need to teach your athletes how to do that. And then you need to do it yourself um, as well. And every time someone turns up, you learn their name, you make them feel welcome, you show them what you're about. And if that's if you're a coach who's all about doing drills and being strict about everything, you show them that first time out. If you're a coach that's about playing games and having fun, you, you make sure you have that, but then you also know where your accountability sits. And and if you start to layer that consistency as a coach off the field and you teach your players how to recruit on the field, you can bump that 
number from 25 to, to I would say 32 pretty quickly. Um, and then the 32 to, to really 50 um, happens by cultivating that culture. And, and you can probably do it, I would say, if the consistency shows, if you can do it for two to three years, that's where you sort of get the numbers bumped from. Yeah. So the first step is recruitment, right? And then the second yeah. step, you know, to me, once a person shows up, recruitment for that per- player is over. Now we're talking retention. And so yeah. now, so, you know, it's on to the players to recruit and it's on to the coaches to have quality retention strategies. Um, yeah. Like you said, either by knowing their names or, you know, playing games or, you know, whatever it is that, however it is that you want to, you know, display your, your retention strategies, have those in mind. Cool. Awesome, Josh. Well, I really appreciate your time. Anything else you got, or anything last final comments or statements? Uh, no, I mean, if you've got ideas, shoot them at us. Right? I think uh, we're all building this together, and um, I appreciate um, just being able to talk to people and, and talk rugby any day of the week. Yeah, careful what you wish for, Josh, with that comment. But yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will. Uh, I actually have an email. I'm gonna forward out to everyone about that uh, survey. So. Uh, Josh's email will be on that. Uh, he'll be his. You can go back to the thread, find his email address. So if you got any questions, feel free to shoot him an uh, email directly. Uh, Josh, again, thanks so much for your time. Really good. Uh, really appreciate it. And looking forward to working together, uh, building some more incredible events. So, um, all right, guys. Have a good one. See you, man. Bye.